Now we turn to Cuba, where hundreds of thousands of people marched in Havana on May 1st to celebrate International Workers' Day. They were joined by an international delegation uh, that included the Indies Ambagagarian, and, and that delegation had a chance to meet with all kinds of uh, Cubans from various walks of life and uh, learn more about what's happening in Cuba and also learn more about the impact of the U.S. blockade of Cuba, which uh, began more than 60 years ago. Uh, Amba, well, uh, welcome back to the show. Uh, um, you know, it's great to have you back and, and to be able to share what you uh, you learned in Cuba. So can you uh, just start out um, a little bit, just uh, uh, tell us uh, who was on this delegation and where y'all went and uh, you know, wh- what did y'all do? Absolutely. Well, it's great to be here on WBI at any time as a guest or as a host. And, and, and yes, please, everybody gives WBI. We really need it. But now turning to Cuba, who also is in, in great need, which I'll get more into later. Um, I participated in a delegation with a group that I will definitely shout out, Witness for Peace. If you're interested in going on a delegation, look them up, Witness for Peace Solidarity Collective. And it was uh, coordinated and organized by a fellow journalist, uh, awesome journalist, Julie, Julia Thomas here in New York has also worked with the independent and she was like, I want to organize a trip to Cuba. So she organized this delegation through witness for peace. And it was mostly other journalists and people that work in media, um, with the vantage point of going down to Cuba to really learn what is happening on the ground, because we know that there's so much misinformation and disinformation uh, fed in through the government and the mainstream media. So, you know, that was kind of the goal. Um, and, uh, like I said, it was a group of mostly journalists, but also just some community activists. We had some, an awesome, uh, young woman who works in, in the South organizing, uh, black workers. We have, uh, um, some other really rad people that were on that, uh, trip and we were really there to learn. And so we spoke with, uh, a wide variety of Cubans from uh, people that had their own small businesses. So uh, one people who had a, these people who had a salsa class, uh, someone who had a small, a small sort of farm with medicinal herbs. But then um, we also, you know, some artisans and people who worked in the art, uh, art sort of industry. But then we also spoke with people who worked for the government who were not a part of private enterprise. So, um, people who worked with arts and culture that is funded by the Cuban government or people who work, um, on, in the agricultural, agricultural system, um, under Cuba's government, people that, uh, work within sort of a historical perspective, people that, work uh within the medical framework for sure an amazing doctor um and we also spoke to um well i'm losing my thought here but we oh we spoke to people both again within the government and with outside of the government who are talking about the um changing family code in cuba so right now they're going through a relatively democratic process on a community level up to an official level of uh changing their laws around family which sort of includes includes uh the family structure as far as like who can take care of a parent or a child, but also uh, what does marriage look like? So they're going through their own sort of um, cultural identity um, conversation, you know, as, as a lot of the world is. Right. So that's what we, that's what we spoke to. 
But I also spoke to a lot of everyday Cubans, just like random people on the street in my free time. So Right. And you, you speak fluent Spanish, so that was easy enough for you to do. Yeah, absolutely. Right. And, and what did you see during your time in Cuba that stood out as being different from what you experienced living here in the United States? Ah, uh, too bad we don't. I, I know, too bad we don't have another hour. But you know, and just... um, uh, but you know, I was telling you earlier, John, that basically it feels like just about everything has flipped on its head. Like everything, other than you know, some the sort of general trials and tribulations of being a person or being a person living under a power structure um, is about different. So, where in the U.S. we have. Um, a surplus of resources that are really, uh, really unequally um, sort of uh, disseminated throughout the populace, right? We all know about yep. the 1% now. It's the 1%. 1%, all of that, right? You know, then we have poor people and migrants so not able to find jobs or, you know, working uh, like, you know, three, three jobs in one day, stuff like that, you know, for six bucks an hour, something like that. So in, in Cuba, there are, is there are, uh, there's a very uh, lack of resources uh, for many reasons, mostly the blockade. Um, and uh, they have a, a vast lack of resources or at least, uh, you know, processed resources, I guess, because obviously it is a fertile island. Um, but they have really lack of access to almost everything. Um, and it is much more sort of fairly distributed throughout the people. Uh, but everybody is hurting for resources. But where they lack in resources, um, they are extremely supple in heart and in mind and in spirit. Like there's a sense of solidarity among Cuban to Cuban that I just never felt anywhere else and it was like really moving and also bittersweet because I'm coming back here and just really not seeing that same level of solidarity and so there's this level of solidarity that's the heart and then there's this level of like constant discernment I mean Cuban people are highly educated there are most you know people that I spoke to that were my age or older had gone to college because college is free and uh and the literacy rate is 97 percent now I don't know exactly what it was before the revolution in a lot lower it was like 30 to 50%. I think it was under 50%. It was very low, embarrassingly low. And so it's up to 97%. And that shows. I think another thing that shows is, um, <laughs> despite the, the shortcomings of, uh, you know, uh, of what, I guess, what socialism can do within a capitalist framework that we live in, and then the obvious shortcomings of capitalism, like I really learned that a people to a government or to a social system is kind of like a child to a parent or a group of students to a, a teacher or a school. Like we do seem to reflect to a certain extent on a general level, the values of our rulers or, or the system that rules us. Right. Like I could just see yeah, the system wouldn't be able to still stay in place if it, if, if it didn't work to, out that way. Absolutely. It seems obvious what I'm saying, but it, it felt enlightening in the moment. I was like, sure. Wow, even though like Cuban socialism, you know, has its problems. And again, socialism can't be really be realized in this global capitalist framework, not to mention the blockade. Like these people are looking out for each other. And these people aren't talking about themselves so much. Coming back, being on the subway, hearing every person just how they're going to do better, what they're going to do next. They're in a rush. They're late. You know, I love New York and I love the hustle, but that was a lot of culture shock. A lot of culture shock. And I'll just say too, like uh, uh, <laughs> the health system 
while people have to wait in lines in Cuba and there's a lot of like lacking medical resources, which again is a factor of the blockade, uh, people have access to preventative health care. They have a health system where there's like this uh, a mini clinic and then like a larger sort of like like imagine like an urgent care size thing mm-hmm. and then a hospital within each sort of like community area. And at your mini clinic, your doctor, the doctors live on top of the clinic. So they are like forced to sort of stay within that locale. And, uh, and they check on, they go to your door if you don't show up for your, for your, for mm-hmm. your appointment. And I'm comparing this to like, I'm so grateful to have health health first, which is, you know, essentially like Medicaid, the state healthcare system. But I have to be, I have to shove all my problems into a 15 minute, a 15 minute appointment on telehealth, which is never enough, which means that I have to make another appointment to talk to my doctor. And I'm suffering from terrible COVID. I mean, it's ridiculous. Not to mention Cuba has figured out a vaccine for a for lung cancer, but we can't access that either because of the blockade, which maybe you'll ask me about next. Yeah. So uh, talk a little bit more about the impact of this more than 60 year old blockade that has been, that was intensified in the 1990s by the Helms Burton law and then further tightened uh, under Trump. I mean, uh, Biden did lift a few of the restrictions yesterday. Yeah. Uh, um, but uh, what were people, I mean, wh- what was your sense of the blockade's impact? And um, and and what were Cubans telling you about this, and 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 why why you feel it's so important for the blockade to be lifted? Right. So the blockade affects, um, like essentially all trade. Um, one um, how do I put this? So the blockade not only sanctions. Um, trade between the U.S. and Cuba. And the only sanction that isn't quote unquote, uh, the only trade that isn't quote unquote sanctioned is that of food. But Cuba has to buy in cash that day, which isn't really difficult for a small country that's in a lot of debt. So it essentially is a blockade on food. They do get chicken from, they do get chicken from um, the U.S., but that's a long story. So it sanctions not only trade between the U.S. and Cuba, which would be difficult in itself because essentially in this, again, global market, mm-hmm. capitalistic market, everyone has to be buying and selling to the U.S. You know, we're, we're, we're the empire right now. So that would be difficult in itself, but that's not where it stops. It, sto- it doesn't stop. So essentially any country that wants to do trade with Cuba then can't do trade with the U.S. or is sanctioned by the U.S. And that includes even a product like if uh, for a country if one part of the product has. yeah. So let's like use a country like China, who obviously is like, we're going to trade with Cuba anyway. We'll deal with the sanctions. They cannot sell Cuba anything that has any U.S. product in it. 5% of U.S. product in it. So this complicates every aspect of life from the types of foods that you need to ship in, um, which is, you know, most there was uh, Castro, Fidel Castro had a rule uh, that every child up until the age of nine gets milk every day for free. And in February, they had their first day without milk um, because obviously COVID has impacted the Cuban economy direly um, in addition to the, the, the Trump basically reinstating any part of the blockade that by that Obama had lowered and then some it's 243 restrictions actually to be exact. Um, so they've been hurting. And so they've been struggling to get milk and they're the first day without milk in February. And it was 
Uh, let me give you a situation of how they have to get milk. So they can get milk from New Zealand and Holland and these other third party countries who are sort of willing to like, you know, help them with this child health program. Uh, but they can't go and pick it up from them or else that country can't do trade with the U.S. So they have to go take one of their own boats to, I don't know, Suriname or Trinidad. They have to go take a boat to an island and pick up the milk. And there was a delay on that. And so there was a day without milk for the kids. And, you know, uh, why doesn't Cuba till more of its own land? Well, what uh, machinery, farm machinery is 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 blocked, you know, Um you know, sometimes they have a great, robust healthcare system for what it is, but a kid is dying in the hospital because they don't have access to a certain medicine that they know exists somewhere else. The list goes on. Art supplies, really everything. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think Cubans uh, are, it's really complicated, understandably complicated. Uh, Cubans are definitely anti-blockade, but right now it seems to be an anti-US, but right now it seems to be you know, people are frustrated. They've got a long time with really low resources uh, ever since the Soviet, you know, uh, since the USSR fell and the wall fell in the beginning of the 90s. So uh, people are, are are struggling and they're tired. And, and I think some of them think they're stuck on this island for the most part because the blockade also restricts travel. So they're stuck on this island. And, uh, and, you know, they know that sort of like the bane of their existence is this set of laws in the US. But I think when you're stuck on an island, maybe it's hard to fully grasp that like that it's such this intangible thing is the bane of your existence. So a lot of them are really frustrated and are kind of overhearing about the blockade. I think they feel like the, maybe it's hit over the head too much. And, uh, and, and they kind of think, well, you know, we need to solve internal problems and we could, you know, uh, uh, figure it out. But I think really, um, honestly, they need to zoom out to a certain extent too, and just realize how unfortunately the reality is that the U.S. war machine and U.S. government can affect the internal economy of countries all over the world and has. But I totally understand being really tired of hearing of the same thing as being your problem for a really long time. And there are a lot of nuances a lot of nuances, which uh, I won't have time to get into, but yeah. I will be writing for the indie. So just check, check us, read us no matter what, you know, and, you go. and I think I'll just say in our closing minute, like, you know, there's a, a lot of complication, like I just said around what Cubans think internally, but a, a big issue is the mainstream media and the fact that, you know, in the past uh, decade or so, Cubans now have access to, uh, the internet and you know Cuban have to wrap up in like 20 seconds Cuban youth are watching euphoria and you know they're 15 that's what they want it's understandable but uh, they don't see the inequalities of global capitalism uh, the mainstream media does not put forth those d- dire inequalities I mean what's going on in New York with homelessness and eviction right now and uh, in the same way the U.S. media is always lying about what happens in Cuba. So there's a big cry for honest reporting. So I just suggest that people, if they want to learn more about Cuba, maybe check out Witness for Peace, you know, be discerning about the news you're reading. And please, if you have the wherewithal to do so and you want some historical context, read Open Veins of Latin America by Eduardo Galeano. That's Open Veins of Latin America. And uh, thank you, BKI, for having us every week and for having me today. I'm on bigger Gary with the independent. Yeah, thank yes. We'll have to leave it there. Hopefully we can come back to this another day. I'm Gary and recently returned from Cuba. And that does it for today's show. We'll be back same time uh, next Tuesday at 5 to 6 p.m. here on WBAI. Thanks to our board operator, Reggie Johnson. 
And uh, Amba, what's our uh, musical uh, uh, outro here? We're gonna hear uh, Roomba, Strictly Rhythm, a Cuban a Cuban remix of some Roomba um, by our Armand Van Helden. Let's go to it. <laughs> 